0: Well, this morning we thought about Cardinal Newman's outline of conscience, and you have the words with you, and it will well repay you uh, to almost learn the passage by heart, because his choice of language is such that he makes very, very clear to all of us just how important the recognition of conscience is. And a lot of our troubles today, I'm sure, which will be solved, will come from understanding the part of conscience and not entirely accepting that the code of behavior, the highway code, that that is conscience. All the rules and the Bible and all that has to fuse with man's own interior mechanism. So this particular meditation, it would be worthwhile for us for a moment to think about the religions of the world and paganism as cardinal newman points out constantly pagans are in no way bad they are in fact only in the dark that that's what paganism meant and in that passage on conscience he mentioned that he mentions that, that that there's this light which enlightens every man who comes into the world and the pagans even if they're living in darkness They have that one gleam at the end of the tunnel. We had a most wonderful program on the television BBC, uh, which you also had here, though over here it didn't come over so well because they confused the order of the different incidents. But the BBC, about three or four years ago, uh, paid a lot of money and picked an extremely entertaining man, Mr. Eyre. Episcopalian, as far as you could make out, but with great Catholic leanings, they paid him to go around and make various programs on the leading religions of the world. It was called The Long Search. Some of you may have seen it. I saw one version, one part of it in um, air, and I saw an Erie, and I saw another one uh, in another retreat house, but Over with us, it went on without commercials on end, so we followed the whole thing in stages. Should it ever come on again on your public television, as it might, I think, you will never regret watching it. Now, the BBC paid Mr. Eyre to go around and interview the leaders of each religion, uh, but he left each religion free to have the cameras go to the places they wanted so that it wasn't a sort of edited version of religion it was in fact uh, each uh, religion had the chance uh, to make their own points and to answer questions from the uh, inquirer i remember very very well how moved i was to see uh, the picture they chose of the hindu religion and a school on the ganges and there was a, it was the festival of a goddess and this great goddess, this statue, was, came out. It was like a, the prow of a ship, a figurehead. She was rather podgy looking and a bit like Queen Victoria, I thought. And she was on a pedestal. And she had two ping pong balls for eyes, which gave her rather a staring effect. And anyway, she was on her pedestal. And all the kids came in. And in India, they're so wonderfully quiet and devout, they all came in, boys and girls, and sat on the floor to pray to her. And then the head boy and the head girl uh, came in with flowers and garlands and put it round her neck. And then after that they made a few prayers. And then the headmaster came in and went through a most wonderful uh, speech in her honour. And it all went on and the children's faces were rapt with attention. Having taught myself, I never saw anybody in England or in America so rapt. It doesn't seem to be a mark of the church, but these kids were absolutely spellbound in front of the goddess. Well, it all went well till about sunset, and then suddenly uh, the goddess's feast was over, and they picked her up, all the children, and with great reverence, they rushed her to the Ganges, and with a great sort of hallelujah, or the equivalent, they tossed her in. And I saw her floating down the Ganges with only her eyeballs sticking up in the distance. And they all cheered like hell, and that was the end of it. (laughs) And what was so interesting, when he was... They were asked about it, uh, the holy men, and they all said that although they had a million gods, these gods turned out to be uh, only uh, what we would think of saints. Though they used the word God and think that we think, oh, they've got all these gods, false gods, when you came to analyze what they were doing, their reverence was enormous, but they really do believe in a one God behind all these millions of little gods that although they started, like everyone, with a primitive religion of fables, no, now God himself, the Council of the Church in its documents, which you were well worth reading, actually praises them that in their myths, in their legends, they're not all that different from us. They've got all sorts of strange customs. Devotion is certain. Of course, the Hindus have that awkward thing about coming back in another life uh, to, uh, to live out your life in another way. I had a poor little Hindu student in Manchester, England, um, at the university. He was dying of starvation, he couldn't eat anything because he, his religion told him that you could only eat roots, that anything the fruit that grew above ground might have your grandmother on it or having doing her second spell round. And he was quite terrified. He only ate things like parsnips. I thought, oh my god, what an awful religion. But he, he was adamant. He took about 10 priests and endless his persuasion to try and change his conscience on that one matter and say, we have a, well, eat grandmother just for once. <laughs> but I mean, his earnestness and fervor far outstripped anything we've got. <coughs> so the Hindus, one, they showed. They showed the Buddhists, a whole program on them, and very interestingly in China on the uh, ancestor worship of the uh, Confucians and others out in China. Now there again, when you saw, when they explained their religion, you could see they were struggling towards a real god. All these other gods were not playthings, but they they were tradition, they went back like we have King Arthur and the Round Table, but man doesn't stop with the human-created religion. And what I Father Ritchie, the great Jesuit who got to Peking 300 years before Nixon, he wrote back to say that ancestor worship wasn't all that different from what we do with the holy souls. Unfortunately, Rome didn't listen in the 17th century. Um, it's got all sorts of superstitions attached. But then I think our purgatory has too. But the strange thing is uh, that they were feeling towards the same, They then showed you the uh, Mohammedans. And I wish last night you could have seen the program. There was a program on your television last night explaining the muddle and confusion that the Americans made, and of the British, which led to your hostages because of our inability to understand the Mohammedan world. It was a very balanced program showing all the scenes of the hostages and the old ayatollah whom God preserve, um, and uh, we saw it all again, but then we saw how offensive the Shah was uh, for years uh, to Mohammedan thought. Well, now in the film that they chose, in the Long Search, the Mohammedans were wonderful, um, and you saw them, of course, in their mosque praying. And some of you—I don't know if you, any of you were hostages, excepting Stokel—that um, I don't know if, uh, if you ever uh, been to the, the East of there to watch the Mohammedans praying in the street, or when they're called to prayer on their prayer mats, or in their uh, mosques. There was a photograph last night. Thousands and thousands of them all kneeling on the ground. I've seen it myself. It's most moving. And fo- they put their foreheads on the ground with intense, uh, great intensity, looking out uh, for God and Allah himself and Mohammed his, uh, his prophets. But they've got a god. And you saw in all these religions, then they had the Jews. They, the Jews, funnily enough, chose uh, scenes from their liturgy which didn't really, wouldn't impress a Christian. I don't know why. It was marvelous. But the pictures they chose were sort of slightly hostile. They, I don't think they actually did themselves any good. They showed a wonderful uh, quartet in Berlin of four great musicians. Which, rightly showing how music is part of the Jewish religion and how gifted they are. That was very w- wonderful. Then they showed the people at the Wailing Wall, but they all had kind of top hats on and were all bowing their heads up and down, and so it didn't look very Western, I must admit. And then they showed a rabbi dressing up with his phylacteries to, uh, to say his prayers in the morning, and with the care he had to take That if the the phylactery went the wrong way around one thumb, then he had to start again. And rather like our Lord said in the scriptures. But you saw him praying. You saw a debate in a seminary. And the whole thing, all these things showed, with the Jews we know that. I mean, after all, our whole religion comes from them. So we've got no possible, uh, uh, in any way can we ever be anti-Jewish. Our Lord would never forgive us, his mother would never forgive us, and indeed our whole missal and all our prayers would have gone if we didn't have the patriarchs of old. We mention Abraham and Isaac in the Mass. This is an extraordinary scene. They put a scene on for the Roman Catholics, which was admirably done, one of the best I've ever seen by any any Catholic, and they put on a marvellous one for the Greek church. It was the Romanian church. And that a very strange thing that out in Romania, their seminaries are filled. They've got more vocations to the priesthood than they can cope with. But you saw their liturgy at Easter, and all the people going and walking under the altar when our Lord was in the tomb. It was a magnificent series. We saw every religion. What came out of it all, I felt, and the man who uh, led the interviews showed that, was the extraordinary thing that one can't, human nature can't stand still and pagans by the very conscience that Newman referred to they are drawn and drawn and drawn and drawn towards a power outside themselves and you say, if one if one was to deny that one would have to deny the whole of history we'd have to say every man is wrong we saw that very much with John de Brebeuf with the Hurons you see it among the ancient Huns and the British and the Egyptians. This extraordinary thing, you start with a lot of gods, a lot of legends, and then something happens, you know there's something more. You hear this voice. And none of us can complain that the Mohammedans don't have a very strict conscience and are very, very shocked by the behaviour of the Christians from the West. Whether they're right or not, we can't say they haven't got religion. I felt very much yesterday that Although the ayatollah was not attractive, as far as I could see, and the people in the streets yelling were not very edifying, that I can quite see how deeply the West shocks them. And maybe it should. Maybe it is that the West isn't so good today. At any rate, you've got this endless thing going on, and we see it. You get that very well brought out, of course, today. Why all these people go to these messiahs from California? Why the heck anybody goes to a messiah from California? I don't know. Especially when he's only 15 and got a stomach ulcer. I'd rather have somebody a little better than that. Or Mr. Moon. What is this extraordinary thing that... Are people all suckers? You take that dreadful thing that happened at Gu- in Guyana with all those thousand people d- dying in our own day. Why? They're longing for something they don't know what to have. There's something pathetic missing that animals aren't doing. Animals don't long for God. They praise God by just running around and eating what's left over from our lunch. But um, no, the uh, men are craving they'll follow anybody. Anyone who gives them a a grain of hope. Cardinal Newman, again to quote him, I like to quote a letter of his because it's a very interesting one. When a chap wrote to him, and wanted to know whether it would be better to read Thomas A. Kempis or the poet Horace. This was written in 1873. is about five years before Newman became a Cardinal. Newman says, I have not forgotten your question through Miss H. It is not difficult to answer, but to give her satisfactorily the grounds for that answer is difficult. She tells me you have been interesting yourself in Horace. that you wish to know whether the lessons you get from him are not learned better from Thomas Akempis in the imitation. I think not, because a heathen's experience of life is not the same as a Christian's. Our Lord had a full knowledge and love of fallen man. He came to save that which was lost. Saint Paul had that love according to his measure after him, and so the great missionaries like St. Francis Xavier. We may gain from the classics, especially from the Latin, a good deal in the way of that knowledge, the way of that knowledge, both of man and God. The poems of Horace, I grant, are most melancholy to read, but they bring before us most vividly and piteously our state by nature. They increase in us a sense of our utter dependence and natural helplessness. They arm us against the fallacious promises of the world, especially at this day the promises of science and literature to give us light and liberty. It is most piercingly sad to observe how the heathen writers yearn for some unknown good and higher truth and cannot find it. How Horace in particular tries to solace himself with the pleasures of sense and how a stern monitor he has within him tells him that death is coming. This is practically all I've said in the retreat. Lucretius is another author teaching still more solemnly the same awful lesson. We should be happy, he says, were it not for that dreadful sense of religion, which we all have, which poisons all our pleasures. I will get rid of it. But he could not, and he destroyed himself. Who can but pity such a race, so great and so little? Who does not recognize the abyss of misery which lies in that wound which sin has made in us? Who does not begin to see from such a spectacle of love of the Eternal Father, who felt it in its fullness and sent his son to die uh, for for us men? Now, that is a true picture, I think, that if you read any of the classics, I've got Marcus Aurelius here, and when you read these people, they were extremely good. First, they couldn't be satisfied with the gods they had, who were only designed to last for 70 years, 70 years rather like our motor cars today. They all just dropped to pieces. And a man like Horace couldn't go on with Jupiter and Neptune. They kept it up when they were young, and then it became a, a meaningless ceremony. But then they began to try and find another god. Marcus Aurelius starts by taking c- consolation from nature. And he says, don't do anything that would contradict nature, that that is your purpose in life, is to fit in with what is, na- what is natural. And to accept your death when it comes, because it's natural. I think you'll find a lot of the poor communists in Russia are doing this very same game. Solzhenitsyn brings it out. Where you just die for Mother Russia. But that's not satisfying, and then eventually Marcus Aurelius gets down to saying the universe, I will do nothing in my life that does not conform to O universe. Won't get you very far, I don't think, but he got him about, a little way. And then Marcus Aurelius suddenly changes and starts to talk, calling God He. In his uh, lovely meditations, right at the end of his life on the Danube, trying to fighting the Huns, all alone, he died out there on the feast of St. Patrick, about 400 years before the Irish were ever heard of, and uh, Marcus just died on March the 17th, all alone in his tent, having written all these wonderful prayers, uh, which great saints like St. Ambrose later used as their prayer book. He got down to he. So did indeed Plato, so did Virgil, Extraordinary how some of them got higher and higher and higher and higher till they almost came to God. And the Mohammedans certainly uh, do pray to God without any doubt at all. And the council of the church points out they all pray pray to our Blessed Mother. And of course they say Jesus is all right but not, he's only a prophet. But they've all got that strange thing that they all, it wasn't only the Jews, they all came together and eventually the fear of God and being on the lookout for a light at the end of the tunnel is common to almost everyone. We've got a chance here, which we never had before, because um, now you've got, say, in your country and we have, enormous number of pagans are now part of our nation. I've got a friend in Chicago who did a doctorate in theology the other day and now goes out um, to help Japanese people living in Chicago. And they come to her mainly about how to wash their clothes and uh, which toothpaste ought you use and, you know, where you take dristan or whatever it is, or aspirin. And uh, they come to her for everything. And then uh, gradually they said, now we're in a Christian country. We'd like to know about Christianity. (laughs) And of course, they are the most charming people in the world and most intelligent, but there's no one to teach them. But they wanted just as much, so we've got an enormous chance In our own doorsteps now, the foreign missions have come to us. We have then all these people struggling and struggling and struggling, and eventually we get to the most beautiful passages in the old law. I could pick hundreds, and I'm sure you know a lot. I would recommend that you read Exodus 3 at the burning bush, which is such a remarkable uh, passage where God, Yahweh, revealed his name and where he sent Moses out to fetch the children of Israel from Egypt. But I've got this other passage which means so much to me, I hardly ever leave it out of any retreat now, and some people, I think, haven't read it. It comes in Exodus 33. 33, it's the time when Moses uh, wants to see God's glory. And it's a marvelous passage, and it does give us a very, very apt description of the whole of the ends of the pagan world with the true chosen people, who aren't pagan, who had the same God as we have. Moses said, Do let me see your glory. God answered, I will make all my beauty pass before you, and in your presence I will pronounce my name, I who grant mercy to whom I will, but my face you cannot see for no man sees me and still lives. Here, continued the Lord, is a place near me where you shall station yourself on the rock. When my glory passes, I will set you in the hollow of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand so that you may see my back, but my face is not to be seen. It's an extraordinary story of Moses, quite one of the most holy, the most intimate with God, who went up to the mountain in a cloud and talked to God. Moses suddenly felt, Lord, if I could only see you. And God said, no, you can never see me, but I'll put you there and I'll hold you in and I'll go by and then you can see my back. That is to say, you can see my reflection. You can only see God in his reflection or you die. So that's what I loved about this scene is, for you in this wonderful house, you see you only go out into a garden, like your estate here, and that's your prayer book. You see God's glory, his genius, that the Mohammedans see, and that the Jews see, and that the Hindus see, they all got that. You, you see the intricacy of nature, and you look at it, and you're seeing the reflection of God. And you mustn't cheat. You mustn't only see daffodils that you're meant to look at, and all these other little things, larkia. You've also got to look at all the animals eating each other. God, after all, if you want to see what he's like, you've got to take the whole thing in. Do you remember those things we had when we were kids? Awful pictures, seeing Little Red Riding Hood standing outside her granny's cottage, and it said, find the 72,000 insects hidden in the bushes. And you went like this and like this, and everywhere you saw little eyes all popping out. When well, you go out there and you don't have to turn the garden around, you'll suddenly see horrid things, not only walking past you, but walking on you. And you see little beady eyes. I had some dreadful things the other day in Dallas. I ate what I thought were almonds, and they were grasshoppers. I suddenly saw their eyes looking at me as they went in. No wonder the Ewings are so revolting. <laughs> I don't know why anyone wants to eat a grasshopper, but, but if you go out there and watch, every animal's trying to eat another animal. Now, that's not cruelty, it's not a sin. What are they looking for? They're wanting to be nourished. The end of eating for every, every animal made, every plant has to get nourishment. Then you suddenly realise when we go to communion, that's exactly what we're doing. That the same pattern that we see in a garden will be found in our faith. But the strange thing is, the garden only shows the reflection of God. I can't see God. God then is a very lonely figure. That's why I think the Mohammedans, the Jews, those who don't believe in the incarnation, pray better than we do because they're praying to such a powerful, all powerful God. And when you're in your room, if you're a mystic, or if you want to follow the cloud of unknowing, then that is, like Thomas More did. That is a kind of prayer to God the Father which is all-absorbing. You see it in the Mohammedans' faces, and you see it in the Jews, and you saw it in the Hindus. But then the extraordinary thing is, but God's just all alone. I've never been able to find another image that frightened me so much. I have to put it in every retreat, as I saw in the Zoo at Denver. In fact, any zoo teaches you these things. When they opened the zoo, Uh, restaurant in the zoo at New York they had a lovely poster up saying come to our restaurant and let the animals see you eat for a change and it's an extraordinary thing when you go to a zoo when you look at the animals there was this enormous huge gorilla big monstrous thing and it was sitting there on a little stool in its cage looking at me and I looked at it and it was a horrible thing and we looked at each other for some time I don't know what it was thinking Um, I blinked first and then I asked the keeper. I said, what's he thinking about? And he said, oh, nothing, he's mad. And I said, why is he mad? He said, oh, well, he's been there for 14 years, and he's been seen nothing but tourists. You go mad if you did that. I thought the keeper was going a bit mad too, to be honest. <laughs> well, I looked at this great horrid thing, and then I went to the parrot's house to get a little bit of encouragement, and then came back again. This beastly thing was still staring out. And then I suddenly thought, You see, with God, all people get, if you don't take care, is a lonely, solitary, magnificent, supreme being, very like Lord Nelson on top of his column or your Statue of Liberty. And all these pagans, holy men, they've got half the truth. They've got all the awe which you read in the Bible of the temple and all the care they took to adore God, all the ability to adore God, to be sorry, to be frightened of God, because it seems to me a solitary God is frightening. And then you suddenly realise that Moses couldn't see God's face, and yet suddenly, on a certain day, by the River Jordan, God's son became a man. It changes totally the whole image of religion. If we hadn't got the incarnation, we would, if we were pious people, we would have just the infinite God, and some people would find that enough. But those who've sins and those who rather dread the judgment or are not quite sure what the next world will be like, who, like poor old Hadrian, talked to his soul when he was dying because he had nothing else to talk to, and said, poor little soul, companion of my life on earth here, now you're going off naked and stiff and not to be able to decide, as you used to do, what you'd like to do. He was the great emperor, wrote that. Without the incarnation, we would that's as far as we get now God having said you can't see my face suddenly the face of God came so suddenly our Lord was born on earth and God himself came down on earth and that's where we'll go on from at the next time but the incarnation is the key to the whole of religion